This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The U.S. Navy has yet to clarify if it will appeal the decision by state regulators to fine the military close to $9 million, 8.7 to be exact. It may be the state's largest fine ever levied against the Navy over problems with what is described as the third largest sewage treatment plant in the islands. In a statement, the Navy acknowledged receipt of the notice of violation order and said it's continuing to monitor its discharge, making improvements to the facility. It also added in June 2021, the Navy and EPA entered into a a federal facilities compliance agreement to address known deficiencies within the facility, committing to a series of 21 actions with associated timelines. The Navy is on track to meet those FFCA obligations, including assessment plans and construction projects which may also address some of the sites in um, the uh, September 22nd notice of violation order. Simply put, the notice of violation points to a failure to maintain the facility. State health officials found critical deficiencies, including an open valve and a bypass of wastewater that exceeded legal discharge limits. We talked to Hawaii Health Department Environmental Health Specialist Matt Carano. I think what people, what's lost on people is the cost to maintain something like a wastewater treatment plant is hundreds of millions of dollars. So while an $8 million fine seems like a really huge amount, I think it's necessary to compel compliance at some of these facilities and force the people making the decisions to be aware of how expensive it is really to maintain this infrastructure. So, you know, it, it is, I wouldn't say uncharacteristically large, but it is certainly significant. But that's kind of the world we're in right now, which is, you know, when you're maintaining facilities that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to billions of dollars, you know, compliance is not an option and we have to remove any kind of economic incentive. What do we know about this sewage treatment plant? You know, how old is it and when did the discharges happen over what period of time? Yeah, so this is a sewage treatment plant that we oversee as part of our regular, you know, day job. It's been in operation for decades, and like all large facilities, requires an infusion of money and capital to keep running. In about 2020, they started self-reporting effluent limit violations, but what they were indicating to us was that it wasn't necessarily, you know, legitimate wastewater effluent limit exceedances because testing immediately downstream of their disinfection unit showed that it was really, you know, no bacteria. But what they only reported recently was that they discovered essentially that there was a bypass going on in their system and they were accumulating sewage sludge at a location downstream of the UV disinfection unit but upstream of their final effluent sampler. So the effluent sampler was catching actually what the effluent quality was that was going out to the ocean and because they had this kind of pocket where they were accumulating sludge that it really was, you know, which that doesn't meet the standard specification necessary to be discharged legally. And so this was raw sewage? No, so it's treated. It is treated, but in essence it's treated, and then because of a flaw in their system, they were recontaminating it before sending it out to all Did the military explain what caused this buildup of the sludge in this area? So it did in the last month. So they were pursuing and trying to understand why they were getting this sludge buildup. But there were parts of their wastewater treatment system that they weren't aware, or certain valves were open, that they weren't aware was open, creating this situation where there was a bypass in their system. And they only discovered that, you know, approximately a month ago when we started getting you know, directly involved in kind of the inspection and investigation. Now, whilst we started to do that, we uncovered or I should say uncovered so much as we identified additional structural issues 
um, at their facility that really require remedy. Is the wastewater treatment plant, I don't know, at risk of discharging anything more at this point? You know, right now they're back under compliance or back in compliance, but they were really in a precarious position in terms of the actual equipment itself. And a large part of the order is to get people to come in who are qualified and can do assessments to identify exactly what parts need to be fixed in exactly what order so that, you know, the slight malfunction at the plant doesn't, in fact, cause a catastrophic failure. What can you tell us as far as the upkeep you know, Pearl Harbor has a kind of a civilian staff that, you know, operates a number of its facilities. But I don't know, do they then contract with other companies, you know, to maintain it? Or I don't know, how does that work? Well, ultimately, you know, the operation of the facility is under the Department of Defense. And while they have civilian employees, as, you know, they do throughout, right, the, the military organization, it is still under the responsibility of NAFAC and then of Joint Base. So really, the degradation of the facility, putting it in, leading to this very precarious position, is from years of lack of investment and maintenance into the facility. There is an existing enforcement order issued by EPA that covers parts of the facility, but the enforcement order or the federal compliance agreement that the EPA entered into with the Department of Defense does not capture all of the facility, and the parts that were outside of that compliance agreement were the parts that we identified really critical deficiencies. So our order captures all of it. It doesn't leave any parts vulnerable. Has this facility been cited before for any other violations? You know, not recently. I mean, what we're seeing is this enforcement action really is kind of shows, again, the degradation of the facility over time. You know, I've been here long enough that you know, a decade ago, the facility was in a much better condition. But in Hawaii's environment, and especially in the wastewater industry, it, it's so hard on equipment that if there's not a constant upkeep and infusion of capital, the facility can go, you know, sour pretty quickly. And that's that's what we see here. So, no, there hasn't been this long litany of enforcement actions. In fact, I think they were in pretty good standing up to 10 years ago. But definitely over the last couple of years, we've really seen that the facility has really fallen into disrepair, and that that's a lack of capital. It was the Navy that initially flagged this. Well, so the Navy self-reports, and then the Navy also, you know, self-reported when they found a bypass in the last month, but it's when we went and did our inspections that we identified additional issues that weren't necessarily that pressing to the Navy, but is certainly pressing as far as we're concerned. And this is like the aeration basins and the lack of redundancy for disinfection and actually the root cause damages for the effluent pump station. Basically, you found this in your inspection just to say, hey, you could have bigger problems down the road if these things don't get addressed. Yeah, I think they have big problems now, but they could have catastrophic you know, issues down the road if they're not addressed now. And this facility, who does it service? Is it the whole base or just part the of the whole base? base? So practically everybody, not, not everybody, but practically everybody on the joint base water system, so this would be the Hickam side as well as the Pearl Harbor side, their sewage goes to the NAFAC wastewater treatment plant. And this is when, I don't know, if you look out the window when you're flying into you know, H&L, you can see the wastewater treatment plant right at the mouth of Pearl Harbor. It's the only one they have? 
It's the only one they have. There's no way that they could reroute you know, their wastewater somewhere else in case they had any kind of catastrophic failure. Is there any follow-up sampling? I mean, I don't know. A lot of time has passed, you know, in the last month. So they do routine sampling, right? And they're back in compliance. They've been doing some immediate actions, you know, as this has been playing out. So they're... Currently, there's no advisories up for them, meaning okay. that their wastewater is meeting the specification required of the permit. So that's that's good news. But if they don't act, you know, immediately, basically, we think that, you know, they're, they're, the next shoe to fall could be the one that sends out raw sewage right into the receiving water or jeopardizes their own people at the plant. So how would you characterize the size of this thing? The two largest Wastewater treatment plants are far bigger. So Sand Island Wastewater Treatment Plant treats a base flow of approximately 50 million gallons a day. Honouli Uli, 25 million gallons a day. And NAVFAX is about 5 million a day. But to put that in perspective, they're the third largest. Everybody else, you know, whether it's Hoi Kai or Wainai or even on the neighbor islands are, are far smaller. So they are what we consider major category in PDS discharger. And then have you got any response back from the Navy? We did put an inquiry, but we haven't heard back yet. No, we haven't heard anything officially. You know, it's typical. I think they're probably taking time to really analyze what's in the order. That was Matt Carano, environmental health specialist for the Hawaii Health Department, talking about a fine of nearly $9 million against the Navy for discharging partially treated wastewater into the ocean in violation of its permit. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking at the work of noted Seattle architect John Graham Jr., whose work can be seen in our backyard. Uh, he earned his bachelor's in architecture during the depths of the Depression in 1931 when jobs for architects were scarce. When he started work in retail management, he saw possibilities for new uh, architectural strategies. This became his focus area as an architect. After World War II, Graham and a partner designed the Northgate Shopping Center in Seattle, which became a model for the suburban shopping center. Although his firm went on to design $70 million regional shopping centers throughout the country, Graham is best known for the Seattle Space Needle, which boasted the United States' second and the world's third rotating restaurant. To answer today's backyard quiz, tell us the name of the first revolving restaurant in the United States and where it was built. Call 808-941-3689 or call 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, we remember celebrated British writer Hilary Mantel, who died last week at the age of 70. Her trilogy of novels on the life of Thomas Cromwell earned two Man Booker Prizes, a host of other honors, and widespread commercial success. We'll listen to our 2012 interview with her. Join us. Beginning this afternoon and three following On Point. State Senator Glenn Wakai was traveling in Japan when he got word that the governor planned to change directions for the new Aloha Stadium Entertainment Project. The Senate Tourism Chair is a proponent of the development, which covers part of his district. He just returned to Honolulu and talked to us yesterday afternoon about his disappointment with the lack of transparency at this late stage of the game. I was quite startled. I would have thought that the governor would leave it to whoever is going to succeed him to kind of carry the stadium forward. So it came kind of a blindsided many of us since the legislature set up the process, put in the money, and had full expectations that DBED was going to lead this construction effort and was startled to find out that the governor doesn't believe in that and believes that he has a better route. And from what I understand, that better route is to have the University of Hawaii now be in charge of the design and construction of this stadium which I'm not against, but why would you offer that up at this juncture of your governorship tenure? We've spent $20 million in two years on consultants and planners to get us to this point. And if we're going backwards, you're going to start from zero. That is a total waste of time and a total waste of money. Is it your understanding that this idea of UH taking it on was broached earlier? I mean, I'm hearing that this was brought up, you know, like last year. Oh, yeah, we had uh, a lot of people at the table a year ago, including UH. And at that time, they showed very little interest in being the point person or point entity for the construction of the stadium. They wanted to have input in, you know, luxury boxes and concessions and all of those things. But they didn't have any uh, inclination at that time to be the one driving, the government entity driving the construction of the stadium. I was hearing that they had asked if there was going to be, you know, additional support to plan this thing. And I guess maybe had been told no. Uh, I mean, that's just what I'm hearing. So I'm trying to, you know, run down these scenarios uh, to figure out, you know, why this late in the game uh, that the governor would want to switch over to this. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know how receptive this current plan that Mike McCartney is going to announce in two or so weeks, how receptive UH is even to taking on that role and responsibility. What if they don't? Then we're going to go back to the current situation, which was set up by the legislature, the DBED be at the forefront of future development of that entire district. There is, though, all this time that we've lost, uh, because my understanding was DAGS was ready to go out, uh, you know, several months ago, and we're just waiting for the go-ahead from the governor and DBED. Yeah. We've been actually, that, that EIS and RFP could have gone out last July, July of 2021. And through, I don't know, lack of urgency, it's been sitting and sitting and sitting on the table for well over a year. And every month that goes by adds $2 million to the cost of construction. The time is not our friend. I don't understand why we have delayed as long as we have uh, over the past year and a half. 
The stadium authority does meet on Thursday. Uh, I believe they hope to know more. We talked to one member who didn't really know anything about it. And, you know, I guess there's some folks that are questioning, you know, whether legally DBED can make this switch, um, you know, whether the stadium authority has to be the, the one to vote on it, this change in direction. Yeah, I think the governor has the powers to, to change um, the lead agency. I just think that the lack of coordination, the lack of building a coalition to move this thing forward, that's what is troublesome. I mean, so if the stadium authority was given notice, UH was, I mean, all of us legislatively were giving notice, we would could all be supportive, but in, the complete opposite has happened, right? It's just this element of surprise has taken place and caught all of us off guard. And now we're all trying to scramble to figure out what the pieces are and to see how beneficial or not beneficial this new direction is. And I just think that the lack of coordination, the lack of honesty and transparency is only frustrating all of us who are really want to see this project get done. You know, we did talk to the two gubernatorial candidates. They're scratching their heads as well because they are ultimately going to be the ones that will be charged with seeing it through, whatever this governor decides. Yeah. And I just don't understand when we have almost eight years of paralysis why would this administration wake up two months before they're about to leave and cause so much confusion? Just quietly go away and let the gov- next governor, whoever that may be, take over and, and run this project downfield. You know, the other thing that Mike McCartney has on his plate is the uh, contract you know, for HTA, you know, marketing, destination management. That expires Wednesday, I think, at close of business. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. Yeah, well, I think that uh, it's pretty indicative of the type of leadership that we have, both in the EGA administration and particularly in DBIT, that we have all of these question marks that are going to have to be cleaned up by the next administration. I, I feel sorry for the Josh or Iona, whoever's going to take over, because they're not even starting from zero. They're starting from negative five, because this administration is creating all kinds of chaos before they even begin day one of their new uh, governorship. You know, you just returned from Japan, and uh, HTA just put out, uh, you know, an RFP uh, for the marketing contract uh, for the Japan market. We'll obviously wait to see what gets decided with the uh, domestic market, but, you know, that's a multi-million dollar contract. You know, everybody's left hanging. We don't know if that contract's going to be extended with HVCB or if they'll go with the uh, Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement or if they'll split the two. Uh, or if they'll somehow, you know, end up in court. Yeah, I mean, that's a, another huge, huge mess courtesy of DBET. And, you know, you mentioned I was just in Japan. The timing was so perfect for Hawaii. The Prime Minister of Japan last Thursday announced all COVID restrictions are done. We can go there with no testing, no need for a visa anymore. I mean, he's really opened the door for outbound Japanese travel. And great that Hawaii was there uh, to showcase and pitch ourselves against the 130 other countries that were there as well. And we all know pre-COVID, I mean, the most coveted tourist for the state of Hawaii was the Japanese visitor. But one of my struggles with HTA and the way they looked at the Japanese marketing contract is that there was, in my opinion, very little accountability when in 2019 we're spending as a state and HTA $9 million to bring in hundred and uh, excuse me 1.6 million Japanese visitors and then over the course of time and last year we spent six million dollars to bring in 25,000 Japanese 
I didn't understand why we were spending so much on the market that was dormant. Uh, we should have saved all of that money for this moment when we know that the floodgates had finally opened and we would maybe splash $12 million into the Japanese market in the months ahead. Now we've, we've spent all of that money under previous uh, years for very little return on investment. So as we move forward with the Japanese uh, RFP, I really think there has to be full accountability. The public deserves better deliverables than we've seen in the past two years. And then were you in Japan, you know, on, uh, on, on, this, on tourism issues? So I went to, for two things. The second part of it was for the Japan Travel Expo. The first part was with the sister city relationship we have with the, this city called Sakaimachi. So I did that on the front end to broker more deal-making between Hawaii and Japan on, with that city and then stayed an uh, extra few days to look at the tourism expo in Japan. Okay. And then, gosh, what was your takeaway? I mean, is there pent-up demand? The Japanese are eager to get out and, and travel. I will say there are two things hurting Hawaii as we try to buy for, for the coveted Japanese visitor. One is the depreciation of the yen. I mean, I went there. The yen is trading at 144 yen to the dollar, which means everything that I've known in the past is on sale for 40% off in Japan. Uh, great for outsiders terrible if you're a Japanese because your purchasing power is dramatically diminished. Second issue that they're struggling with is a fuel surcharge. I mean, it's substantial. I think it's $300 right now. October 1st, it goes up to $500. So that, I mean, you bring a family of four, that's an extra two grand just purely on airfare. And we also know that Hawaii today has a hotel occupant or hotel room rate that is far more than it was pre-COVID. It was, I think, around 293 pre-COVID. Now your average hotel room in Hawaii is $380. So the financials make Hawaii very, very expensive for the Japanese. So the Japanese want to go. I think we're going to see in the beginnings only the more lucrative, rich, uh, well-established Japanese coming. But hopefully uh, the fuel surcharge will go down. Hopefully the yen will get gain strength. And by uh, maybe first quarter of next year, we'll see your average Japanese coming here um, and filling our hotel rooms. And I was talking to a gentleman from JTB in Japan on just what kind of Japanese are we going to get. And I mentioned because of the high cost, what Japanese are, what JTB is seeing is that the Japanese who are coming in the very near future are going to stay at a cheaper accommodations. Let's say they're going to stay at an outrigger and let's say they're going to be here for five days. On day five or on, the, on their last night here, they're going to go spend the night at Halikulani. And they're going to, you know, do the Instagram and look at me. I'm having such a luxurious lifestyle and, and time here. But in actuality, a majority of their stay was at a more modestly priced hotel. And they only stayed one night at the Four Seasons or Halikulani. That was Senator Glenn Mackay, who just returned from Japan, talking about the controversial tourism contract and the 11th hour decision by the governor to hold off on going out to bid on the new Aloha Stadium Entertainment District and to have the University of Hawaii build it. Feeling the pain at the pump, the grocery store, and looking at your electricity bill. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton on with us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, the economy 
uh, people are, are, are a little worried. We're hearing the R word and the uh, and the I word, right? Inflation and recession. Yes, that's right. So, um, yeah, as we reported uh, today and as we've been seeing for the last couple of weeks in various uh, places from economists here, uh, the hope is that the recession on the mainland uh, will not be deep and will be fairly short. Uh, also, that maybe it won't affect us here uh, in terms of a full-blown recession. Uh, and we'll talk more about that later and why that is. And in fact, you just talked to Senator Wakai about part of the reason for that is Japan. But all of that said, all of that sort of a macroeconomic uh, viewpoint. When you really start looking at households, uh, people are having a hard time, and people who are already struggling are struggling even more. We have uh, uh, price increases of all kinds of things, namely energy and food. Um, in energy, you've got both electricity and gasoline. Uh, we're talking a 30 to 40 percent increase um, over the last year or so. Uh, and it, it, things could get even worse when it comes to electricity for Oahu. Yeah, I mean, you know, gosh, when you're paying 5 $6 a gallon and, and you watch everything drop on the mainland, that's not happening yet. And then our power bills are just, you know, through the roof, and they're going to get, what, higher next month? Yes, that's right. <laughs> Excuse me. The forecast or the, the word from Hawaiian Electric is that there are going to be some increases uh, because of shutting down the AES uh, coal-fired power plant. It was the cheapest source of electricity for Oahu and a big source of electricity. Um, they're shutting that down, and um, that is going to cause at least a short-term increase in prices for people. And um, on top of what's already shown up, these new increases um, aren't supposed to show up on the bills until um, October. Yeah, but it's still very painful when over the last, you know, couple of months you've been seeing it go up and and even though your usage has gone down, it's very frustrating. It's like, what else can I unplug? Yes, yeah, so that's right. I mean, my colleague James Gonser wrote about this and, you know, we, we you see it on social media. You see a lot of discussions about really, really high increases in electric bills. Um, we haven't, I don't think, fully understood uh, why that is. But again, on top of that that we've seen so far, we're talking about more increases uh, that are going to be showing up on your bills next month. And, you know, when we talk about inflation, uh, you know, uh, you know, people are obviously, you know, worried about uh, the cost of construction and, and, and housing. And, you know, we did talk with uh, economist Paul Brubaker, and, and he believes that, you know, the rents are going to just continue to rise. Yes. Well, one of the interesting things is um, that the Consumer Price Index uh, doesn't show a big increase in rents yet. Uh, it could happen later as uh, leases come due. Um, but overall, the big picture, we don't see that. Uh, still, um, in terms of housing and construction costs, I mean, the increase in interest rates it means money is more expensive to borrow, and that is expected to trickle through the economy and drive up the cost of, of construction of housing and maybe make it more difficult to build affordable housing. You know, and uh, the University of Hawaii Economic Research uh, Organization, I know they, they just issued a report about, you know, the the restrictions that kind of get in the way of, of us being able to build more housing. And, you know, there, there's agreement that we need to cut that red tape in order to uh, to, to do the housing that we need. 
Yes, uh, that is definitely part of the conversation now. Of course, you get pushback from environmentalists who say, no, there's there's a reason for um, for regulation, and we, we can't just let developers run roughshod over the, econ- over the environment. But notwithstanding that, I think a lot of the concern is needless uh, restrictions that slow things down really for no reason. And um, But, yeah, even getting rid of that, it looks like, uh, is going to not completely solve the problem these days because of this increased cost of borrowing money that you need to uh, build build things. And, you know, your hero points to possibly the return of the Japanese tourists, um, you know, early next year is helping to kind of uh, buffer uh, effects of any recession. But we've got to keep our fingers crossed that those tourists do come back. Right. Now, that's exactly right. And that could help keep uh, Hawaii's economy from tipping over into a full-fledged recession by keeping our uh, employment base pretty strong. But as Senator Wakai was just saying um, in your interview with him, you know, a lot depends on um, the Japanese yen and the Japanese economy. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll just sit tight. But thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. To read his stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the Outrigger Waikiki, presenting smooth R&B and soul artist Will Downing, performing nightly September 30th to October 2nd. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to Hawaii Tokai International College and Sierra Club of Hawaii. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Created with many hands from Hawaii's community, the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law Awakening explores the human connection to nature, now on view. Ever thought about keeping your own chickens? Chickens were likely first domesticated 8,000 years ago from red jungle fowl. Polynesians brought this same red jungle fowl, also known as the moa, to Hawaii, and you can still find some of these birds here today. We've got their call thanks to the Makale Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart has your Manu Minute. Moa, or red jungle fowl, were the first birds introduced to Hawaii by humans as they were brought by Polynesian voyagers to the Hawaiian Islands close to a thousand years ago. Moa look a lot like modern-day chickens, and recent research has shown that common chickens were domesticated from red jungle fowl over 8,000 years ago in Asia. Moa are a bit smaller than most other chickens. 
and the males have a classic red, black, and green color pattern in their plumage, whereas regular chickens come in all sorts of color combinations. Moa can also be distinguished by their call. The last syllable in the rooster's four-syllable cock-a-doodle-doo call is much shorter in the moa than the domestic chicken. Here's the call of the moa. And here's the call of the domestic chicken. Moa were once common on all the Hawaiian islands, but are now mainly found in the dense upland rainforests of Kauai where they feed on leaves, fruits, and insects in the leaf litter, and spread the seeds of a variety of native and non-native plants. Even on Kauai, they've now interbred with domestic chickens to such an extent that they're often hard to tell apart, especially after hurricanes Eva and Iniki led to lots of domestic chickens escaping into the wild. A recent genetic study showed that while some birds have retained many of the genes of their Polynesian ancestors, most birds that people mistake for moa are actually just domestic chickens. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friendsofhakalauforest.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we went in search of the first revolving restaurant in the United States. It was conceived and designed by Seattle architect John Graham, who was an early shopping mall pioneer and noted for designing Seattle's Eye of the Needle revolving restaurant. The Hawaii restaurant was Laron, which was inaugurated on the 23rd floor of the Ala Moana building on November 21st. 1961. At the time, it was the highest building in town and could seat 162 guests. The space went through a name change. It was known as Windows of Hawaii before it closed completely in the mid-1990s. The building converted the restaurant into office space and the floor was welded into place and no longer revolves, but the disc still sits atop the Ala Moana building as a reminder of glory days long gone. And in case you're wondering, the world's first revolving restaurant was built in 1959 atop a TB Tower in Germany, but John Graham developed his idea independently of the German design. And congrats to our winner, Christine Wilson, who is a Cornerstone member from Kailua. Thank you for your winning answer, and thank you for your support. That is today's quiz. If you have one you'd like to share, write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Only one U.S. city has supervised drug injection sites to combat overdoses. You know, watching that enormous stack of bodies pile up and knowing that there's some interventions that have demonstrably reduced death that we're still not doing is really frustrating. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. Life-saving, but too controversial. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Stories Out Loud is an event held on the last Thursday of every month on Oahu. It's an opportunity to celebrate the diversity and commonality of the human experience through the art of storytelling. 
It's been described as a miniature version of the moth, who uh, public radio uh, fans may be familiar with. It was created by Arnett Arnix, the community coordinator for the Hub Coworking Hawaii. Arnix is a storyteller who grew up on Oahu in a Samoan family. She's an actor, a musical artist, and has prominent presence in the local comedy scene. She stopped by our studio to talk with the conversations Russell Subiano about how storytelling impacts the community and how it changed her life. The Hub is a place where its whole mission is to provide a space for people to come in and just do better for Hawaii. And just the nature of it, there's so many different groups of people that come in just from various companies. We have creative minds, we have realtors, we have finance industry people, just all different kinds of industries working out of the space. And I think a lot of times when people are in groups, anytime anybody just mixes with each other, you kind of have to assume something so you know how to interact with each other. Like if I'm holding a cup of coffee, then it's like, oh, hey, you like coffee? And it's just like a small talk conversation that's struck up in the kitchen. And then sometimes, though, like people don't move past that conversation. So we never really get to know each other, even though we're in this space to really like get to know like all kinds of people and kind of the push behind Soul Night Stories Out Loud was so that people move past that conversation and stories just in general are magic. Mm -hmm. I love stories and I think one of the things they do is just create empathy and compassion and just learn a little bit more about someone else. Yeah, it's an opportunity to connect and and to deepen a connection, right? Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk specifically about Stories Out Loud. What's the origin of Stories Out Loud? So Stories Out Loud is super new. It actually just started in May. And we do it every last Thursday of the month. Mm -hmm. The first one in May was around Asian American Pacific Islander experiences. The structure we have now is people, a lot of times people decide to tell stories that night. Mm -hmm. And we'll give them five minutes and we'll pull them up. We have some prompts that are on the board because the whole push of it is that everyone is a storyteller and everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has stories to tell. Mm-hmm. We are all just the summation of every story we've ever told, will tell, and are currently a part of. And I think when you tell someone you have a story to tell, which is what I was doing when I was trying to create hype mm-hmm. for like, hey, come do this, a lot of them was like, no, I don't, no, I don't. And I was like, wait, yeah, you do. And then it blew my mind that that was such a common thought that a lot of people had. So then it kind of just grew. And where it is right now, we call people up and we have prompts like, what is your why? What is your favorite memory with your parents? Just mm-hmm. all of these things is that are stories. Because that, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Coming off anytime. No, keep going. No. <laughs> no. Let me focus on, on you a little bit and to learn a little bit about you. Like you were just saying, some people may not think they have a story, but maybe by hearing your story, there might be some listeners out there that you know, might realize that they have a story. What's your story? So I I grew up in Hawaii. I'm Samoan. So I grew up around a lot of negative stereotypes. People thought I was Asian because I wasn't as, quote unquote, as big as other, like my cousins or anything like that. So they just assumed this. And I was the only Samoan in a lot of AP classes and things like that. And so they would tell me that the only reason you're in here is because you're Asian, nothing else. And I grew up hearing that, and because of the classes I took, yeah, most of the kids in my class were Asian, and so like, I definitely felt extremely othered because naturally bigger, my hair is bigger, just everything about me is not even, that, it, it was bigger. 
So then I started to internalize this dialogue of, you're too big, you're in the way. And that became everything. So I was really shy. I remember my high school band teacher, he didn't know I could talk. <laughs> and I, I am very social and out there, but by nature I am quite introverted. And then I think I always wanted to do something where I can bring up my community. Growing up too, we were the house that everybody came to. And I never took that lightly. We um, we would always make so much food without any plans of people coming over, but people would show up, and the door was always open. It's partly why we stay in that particular area, because people still come to our door and like, hey, or they need a night to stay, or whatever it is, and th that's really my mom who would do that. But what I learned from her was no matter what you have or don't have, you're going to share it. So I've always wanted to, whatever I do have, now I try to share. Just, I'm, yeah, I was, I was tired of someone's being looking at as dumb. I remember my teacher, she asked me, she's like, what do you want to be, where do you want to go after this? And I told her, like, I want to go to college. She said, you need to start dreaming realistic dreams. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, and you know what? Going away really helped me because it start it started to see that there the world's so much bigger yeah. than what I might emphasize here as a big issue on the island, and bringing back what I learned and trying to bring my community up and see I'm the older sister for everybody, mm -hmm. everyone on the block. I'm the older sister, so everyone would come to me with things, and I never ever wanted to be without. Yeah. So like flash forward to how I got involved with Improv HI. I had just gotten through like probably the worst year of my life. I'd stopped eating. Like I already battled with depression and that year was just awful. But then I knew if I stayed in that kind of mindset, things were gonna get worse. So I started to try to scare myself every week. And it started off really small. I would go outside by myself or, you know, just really small things yeah. that I couldn't do anymore. And it was just an awful. And I don't want to, like, be trigger for anybody who's, so I won't, like, go into how bad that year was. But, like, I couldn't do really little things. I had to relearn it. And so I said, yeah. So I started off with, like, hey, go out in public by yourself for, like, an hour. Now go have lunch by yourself. And every week I was starting to do something different that would kind of scare me. So I'm always terrified actually and then eventually my friend was like hey you should try improv and so I went to go try improv and improv scared me yeah it, it's it's a it's a scary thing right to get in up in front of people and to try to make them laugh right? yeah yeah it is yeah. and I think the scariest thing about improv it's like it's all your own thoughts mm -hmm. so you have to trust yourself and I didn't trust myself, and I especially did not trust a bunch of people I don't know. Right, right. <laughs> so I was like, I don't trust anything. <laughs> I'm so uncomfortable. But because I was so uncomfortable and so scared, I was like, this is the one. I got to go back next week. And then I kept going back. And then eventually, I just started to like it. So then I started volunteering. Yeah. I started doing shows. And then I really liked the community. I love acting, but it's a little different in that Improv is like a team collaborative sport. Mm -hmm. It's you have to say yes to your partner and you have to support everyone. And that's like a rule. You have to support each other. Right. 
right? Right. Right. The rule is yes and, right? Yes yeah. and. Yeah. Be in the name of support. Yeah. And I was like, this is so cool that this is like in the bones of this art form. And then eventually I wanted to do like a comedy variety show and Tiny Stage and Improv HI, like Kimmy and John, like gave me that space to try this out. And so I started doing my shows there and then Polynesian AF. And Polynesian AF, when she reached out to me to do that show, she actually doesn't know that I was going to move away. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm done with Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> and then she like emailed me and was like, hey. And I was like, oh, but that required me to come back to Hawaii. So I was like, okay. <laughs> but Comedy Festival, like before we had Filipino AF come on, I remember at that show, my Filipino friends would be like, hey, that's my mom. Or that's my auntie, or I know that joke. And they felt seen through comedy. And I was like, oh, and I never had a thought of comedy in that way. So then with Polynesian AF, like after the show, people said the same. <laughs> I cried everything. I'm so sorry. But people said the same thing. They were like, that's my mom. That's my auntie. And they felt seen through comedy. And so to make people feel seen through this as a medium, oh my gosh, so cool. Early on in, in some of your endeavors, like when you wanted to go to, to college, hearing someone say, nah, you're not good enough, and not seeing yourself reflected in other areas of the community. And then you flip the script and coming into improv and coming into this other style of storytelling. Now you find this supportive community, right? The supportive community that says yes. Yeah. The supportive community that you see yourself reflected in the other people that are part of the community. And I think that's a testament to just how strong storytelling and, and the, the idea of storytelling and the, and the craft of storytelling. And the, even though we're talking about improv, the general idea of storytelling, how strong it can be and how much of an impact it can have on people's lives. Have you had the time to, to reflect on how storytelling has made that impact on your life? Yeah, especially in this any time I felt seen, it's because somebody else was telling their story. So, and I heard something in that story, and I was like, hey, that's me. I mean, you're not going to relate completely with the whole exact story, mm -hmm. but the story is just magically, I say it's magic because it does feel like mm -hmm. magic because someone's going through their own experience and just talking about it, whether they're going through it or whether they're done going through it, but just sharing that, hey, I'm going through this too, let somebody else know that I'm not alone. And I think as humans in such a crowded space, I mean, there's over like a million people on this island right. especially, right. it's crazy how we still feel like alone. And it's really easy in those times where we're going through something to like feel it magnified. And then when somebody else says something, then it's like, oh my God, like I'm, it's okay. It's gonna be okay. And stories have the power to do that. When we talk about storytelling, having the power to bring people together, it seems to me like that's one specific way that it does it by reminding other people that they're not alone, you know, and having these opportunities at some at a place like The Hub, at a yeah. place like Improv HI. It seems to me like this idea of, of storytelling creates an opportunity for communities to strengthen yeah. I mean, like storytelling is like built into the human plan. Right. right. It's a part of us, no matter how much we feel like this is not me. This, I don't do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you, you're living life. 
life is happening right now and you, you are the story. When you're ready, you can share it. Just in terms of preserving cultures too, right, right. we try to save the language because the language is what keeps it alive. It's how it's, things are passed down and just historically things are passed down through stories. Yeah. Hawaiian culture, an oral culture preserved through the language. Was it similar in the Samoan culture as well? Yeah, yeah. very much so. Um, and all of our traditions and rituals and customs are all like very oral. Mm-hmm. We have a language actually that's, we have the regular Samoan language and then above that is like the talking chief language and that's only for the like the Haimatais that speak it, which you know, like language shows like all different kinds of things there. One thing that comes to mind is in our Samoan culture, anything, anything, anything that is given at a wedding, a funeral, anything, it's shared. It's split up until everyone that's come and given has a piece of it. And that's all done like through the, all of the matais, the chiefs of the family speaking out and talking until it's we all get to a place where everyone is like it's balanced. So there's just this constant theme of sharing because sharing yeah. is so important. Yeah. Yeah, they knew it, what they were doing in kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, just to touch on that real quick. Like the sharing, especially with island cultures, mm-hmm. wealth is not how much you have. Western culture, your wealth is how much you have and how much you hold on to and keep after you die. That's yours. And Pacifica cultures is wealth is how much you give away. And know, maybe I'm going to end up really broke, but I'm going to just go with that. <laughs> I die. <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Annette Arnick's community coordinator for the Hub Coworking Hawaii, talking about storytelling with HBR's Russell Subiono. The Hub Stories Out Loud event is scheduled for tomorrow night starting at 6.30 p.m. We will have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. We do have to go now, but up tomorrow, we plan to talk about the Hawaii Book and Music Festival that launches this weekend. It's all virtual again. We'll get the lineup. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find all our archive shows online if you want to listen back to something. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.